This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, Again, it's time for Evidence for Faith. This is the weekly program that helps Christians to become thinkers and thinkers to become Christians. It's also a program that presents the historical, archaeological, and scholarly evidences for the historic Christian faith based on the documents of both the Old and New Testaments. And I'm Kirk Hastings. Hi, I'm Keith Kendricks. Hello, Keith. Good to hear you again. Back in the saddle again. Yep. He'll have a little bit uh, to tell us about his travels in a minute. And if you'd like to listen to any podcasts of previous programs, they're available on our website, which is located at www.evidence4faith.com. So, we have a uh, special treat for you today. Um, Keith is back from a couple-of-week jaunt overseas, and he's going to tell us about his exciting adventures in Israel. Yeah, it was, it was really, really great. And we have a special guest with us today, too, the gracious and lovely Nancy Kendricks. Yep. Hello, everybody. Hello. She, she's going to help us describe all the fun things that we did while we were visiting Israel. But we usually start the show with a quote. And on Friday, I was reading from Jean-Jacques Rousseau's A Savoyard Vicar. And I found this really great quote about the Kalam cosmological argument. Okay. We talk about that on the show several times in the past, and it's interesting because Rousseau is hailed as one of these progressive Enlightenment thinkers, but listen to what he has to say about the existence of God and the evidence that shows that he exists. He says, the first causes of motion do not exist in matter. Bodies receive from and communicate motion to each other, but they cannot originally produce it. The more I observe the action and reaction of the powers of nature acting on each other, the more I am convinced that they are merely effects, and we must ever recur to some volition as the first cause. For to suppose there is a progression of causes to infinity is to suppose that there is no first cause at all. In a word, every motion that is not produced by some other must be the effect of a spontaneous voluntary act. Inanimate bodies have no action but motion, and there can be no real action without volition. Such is my first principle. I believe, therefore, that a will gives motion to the universe and animates all nature. This is my first article of faith. That's from Jean-Jacques Rousseau in the Savoyard Vicar. Isn't that terrific? Yeah. Who's this Will guy he's talking about? <laughs> <laughs> Very funny. Just a little joke there. Yeah, there has to be, there has to be a will. You can't, you can't have an inf infinite regress of actions, cause, effect, cause, effect, cause, effect, because you never get to an original primary cause. And without that, nothing gets started. But how can matter move on its own? You have to have a will. You have to have 
someone who volitionally or chooses to start things off. Right. Well, that makes sense that God is the original will that started everything moving, right? Exactly. Yep. Makes sense to me. Well, let's get into the interview then. Okay. Tell us about Israel. I understand also you went, uh, your tour guide was William Lane Craig. Am I correct in that? Yep. He was the host and sponsor. He wasn't the tour guide per se. We had two tour guides. There were two buses, so about 80 people. But William Lane Craig and Reasonable Faith hosted the trip, and they did a wonderful job setting up the itinerary and deciding where we were going to go and all that stuff. So, So it was really good. Wow, that that sounds terrific. I mean, what better situation can you have to uh, tour around Israel with uh, Mr. Craig as, uh, you know, your companion there? That's like yeah, having should... Billy Graham with you or somebody like that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, we should let people know in case they're not familiar. William Lane Craig is one of the leading Christian philosophers and thinkers alive today. He has a double PhD, a PhD in theology and a PhD in philosophy. He's written over 30 books. He is one of the main, probably the leading debater of the atheists, the new atheists that have been writing all these books since 9-11 and uh, just demolishes them. He's an incredibly good debater and uh, really puts them in their place. So it's just was a joy to be able to meet him again and talk to him a little bit more. So it was nice. Yeah, I'll bet. And actually, his wife, Jan, and they're a great couple, very humble people. You were the one that first put me on to Mr. Craig and his website, and I've been reading some of the material and the the, uh, transcripts of some of his debates and things on there, and it's absolutely fantastic stuff. Yeah, exactly. Well, this is where we get the argument, the Kalam cosmological argument that we've talked about a few times on the show. Right. He's one of the major proponents of that, right? Exactly. Yeah. So tell us what you saw over there. All right. Well, we arrived in Tel Aviv and stayed at a hotel called Dan Panorama. And it was right there next to Joppa, which is a biblical city. Everybody probably remembers that from reading the Old Testament or the New Testament. And one of the neat things that happened, there's a beach park that was right there. Nancy and I went down for a stroll after we got settled in at the hotel. And we were walking along. There's sections of beach and sections of rock outcropping and there's a park there and a little museum and little restaurant and we came across this plaque that was on a large rock a bronze plaque and it said that this beach park is dedicated to the christian lovers of zion who sailed here in 1822 on the nelly chapin bringing modular housing from maine (laughs) Is that incredible? Wow, yeah. <laughs> so this is, uh, the reason I think this is so significant is this, this points out that Christians were longing for the return of Israel as a nation, and they believed that this was a prophecy that would be fulfilled. So here in the 1800s, people were expecting Israel to be returned because of Scripture, so it's not a case that script that critics might say that well when Israel became a nation again uh, you guys just looked back in the Old Testament and found verses to fit it no this was a prophecy that was expected long before Israel became a nation and mm-hmm. lo and behold that prophecy was fulfilled 
Yeah, it didn't become a nation until 1949. Right. Amazing. So, so that's one of the main things. I thought it was really cool. Uh, you sent me an email while you were over there, and you said, I'm sitting next to the Sea of Galilee while I'm writing this. <laughs> I thought, yeah, wow, that, was, that must be really neat. Uh, it was. That was actually one of the, I guess if I had to pick out the highlights, the Sea of Galilee was, was one of, definitely one of the highlights, being out on a boat, out on the water, and listening to a, they had a violinist playing Amazing Grace, and we all sang. Wow. You know, that was really, really touching. And to see the area that Jesus had taught in, you know, on the shore, that right. was really, really, really neat. And then I'll, maybe I'll another highlight was Hezekiah's tunnel. That was that was really exciting. It's a 1,500-foot tunnel through solid bedrock that they, they cut through, and you walk the whole length. And then I'd say being in the Dead Sea, floating in the Dead Sea, that was really quite something else. So... Is that one of those uh, uh, bodies of water that you can't sink in because of all the salt content? Yeah, exactly. It's uh, When you touch it, it feels like oil. It's that thick. Really? Yeah, nobody would ever described it that way to me before, but, but that gives you an idea of how thick the water is. It feels like oil, and you float. I guess when I'm trying to float in water, if I were to like stand up in deep water, I, the water would come up to like my nose or my eye level, but... In this, when you stand, just stand up with nothing supporting your feet, the water, you, you are above the water, basically about the nipple line. Mm-hmm. So shoulders, all, you know, your shoulders, all your upper body is above the water. It's amazing. Hmm. Well, maybe you should bring in Nancy into the, and she can give her highlights. Sure. That'd be great. Uh, well, I would, I would agree with the Sea of Galilee. That was uh, something amazing because that was one of the places we went where we could say with 100% certainty Jesus was actually there. Right. The other places was oh, it was in this general vicinity. We're not quite sure if this was exactly the spot. Right. But we know he was on the Sea of Galilee because he calmed the storm and he walked on water. We know he was there. The other thing that was amazing to me was the Temple Mount. Even though the temple is no longer there, you, we knew that Jesus had been there. He stood where we were standing. Right. We st- actually stood where the, the beautiful gate was, where Peter um, healed that man. And you could look out over the whole, you know, down into the Garden of Gethsemane. And we knew Jesus had been in the Garden of Gethsemane. Of course, it doesn't look like it did when Jesus was there. Right. But knowing that he had been there. But I think probably the Temple Mount, just knowing that, you know, Jesus was there and he threw those money changers out of the temple when the temple was still standing. It was just amazing just to stand there knowing that Jesus was there so long ago. Right. You were walking in his foot, footsteps. Exactly. I yeah. hope you took lots of pictures on this trip. Yeah, I, we took um, oh, probably 500 pictures. Oh, that's, that's, that's a good amount. Yes, well, some of them were deleted, but yes. You going to post any of these anywhere so we can look at them? Oh, well, they're on Facebook, my Facebook page. But if you want to, uh, you can go to TravelPod, T-R-A-V-E-L-P-O-D. Okay. And... Put in the search box NJ Beagle Mom, Beagle like the dog Beagle. Right. And you can find that's my blog. And you can find the blog there of what we did every day and a representative sampling of pictures. There's certainly not 500 pictures up there. But <laughs> yeah. you can actually read the blog that, that I wrote after each day. Great. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. You know, Kirk, one of the neat things about actually being there and seeing the geography is seeing how things are laid out and the proximity that one thing is to another. For instance, you know, we 
all probably have in our minds what it was when we read about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane or at the Mount of Olives. And we have this picture, okay, of a garden. But what's amazing is while you're in that garden, if you turn and look across the valley, you see the Temple Mount. You see the temple right there. Hmm. So it's not like you're, you know, at, you know, the Rocky Mountains di- distance from some other mountain. Right. Uh, you know, it's, it's all right there. Well, Israel's not a large country. Yeah, it's, that's right. It's, it's uh, the size of New Jersey. Right. In fact, when we went to Mount Carmel, you could look from basically border to border, from the Mediterranean into, into the border. You just look, look either way, and you see right. the whole country in, you know, in one look. Yeah. So it's amazing. But another example of this geology or um, geography thing is, you know, the story when David was getting older and Bathsheba wanted to make sure that Solomon became the king after him. So David gave the order that Solomon would be anointed. And scripture says that they, that the prophet Nathan took him to Gihon and anointed him there. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, you know, when, I, when I've read that, I thought, okay, what's that? Is that the next town over? Is that three days ride away? You know, what does that mean that, you know, they took Solomon to Gihon and anointed him there? Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out that Gihon is the name of the spring that feeds the city. So, and it happened to be right outside the city walls. So, basically, they kind of walked outside the city wall and anointed him right there. Oh, okay. So, so it just gives you a real clear picture of, you know, all these things, all the Old Testament stories and all the New Testament stories that you read, you know, what was going on. Right. So, so it's kind of neat. The so next- let's, uh, I guess we'll tell you about our trip as we go along. Uh, maybe you might want to remind uh, listeners that are just joining us. Yes, for anybody that's uh, just joining us now, uh, we'd just like to tell you again that this is the Evidence for Faith radio program on WIBG 1020 AM. One of the neat places that we went at was basically the first place that they took us to was to a town called Caesarea, obviously named after Caesar. Uh-huh. And it was the essentially the Roman headquarters during the time of Jesus. Is that on the coast? It is. It's on the coast. Okay. Um, you read about it in the New Testament because Paul was held there in prison. Peter also stayed there for a little while in the book of Acts. Do you remember when Philip is talking to a eunuch and then he disappears? Uh-huh. He, he reappears in Caesarea. Okay. So this is really, this is a, a Roman city. I mean, it had everything. It had the theater and the hippodrome and, you know, all the stuff, the baths and all the stuff that, that Romans loved um, right there. <laughs> and it, it, just a short distance from Jerusalem. So really exciting. And one of, one of the interesting archaeological things that was discovered there is what's called the Pilate Stone. Have you heard of that? Yes. Is that the one that has the inscription on it about Pilate? Yeah, yeah because critics had said that they didn't believe that Pilate ever actually existed. They thought he was a fictional character. Right. Because no Roman records had uh, shown up about him. Right. There actually is a work called The Acts of Pilate but some don't believe that it's actually Kim, it, that it, they think that it might have been a forgery. So right. regardless of that, though, we now have this actual stone that references Pilate uh, as being there. Yeah, right. So anyways, any comments, Nancy, on the Caesarea? What did you think of it? 
Uh, well, it was interesting because uh, we learned why Herod the Great is called the Great there. It was because he was a great builder. He was an amazing builder. He built the whole city up, with, uh, had a palace there. Pilate spent his time there. But then, of course, during the Passover, he had to be in Jerusalem because you know, they, were, they knew there would be trouble. And just the whole history of how Herod built that city, he made a harbor where there was no harbor. Uh-huh. Just made, it was, I mean, you can't describe it. It's just incredible. What he what he actually did to create a harbor for ships because it was so dangerous to to sail on the Mediterranean at in the winter time. So he wanted the ships to stay there over the winter. So he created this harbor by sinking crates of ash and water into the Mediterranean Sea and creating a natural harbor. Just amazing, yep. amazing things. The ash and water turns out to be a formula for an early type of concrete. So yeah, he basically right. put huge concrete pillars out in the water to create this harbor. And it, and it was all to get ships. He wanted commerce to come there, and then he wanted the ships to harbor there during the winter, and then he would basically make money off of the trade, the, the boats and sailors who had to stay there. Sure. So he's an incredible businessman. He also, he's a little um, trivia here. He is the guy who invented second and third place. Oh, really? Yeah. He played he baseball? <laughs> No, no, the not, not base. Okay, I got you. Yeah. yeah. So, in the old days, there there was only first place, and in order to get Caesarea going, he wanted to have some games there, and for people to travel all that distance, he had to promise them more than just first place. Okay. So promised them prizes for second and third place. No kidding. I never what heard I- that. Yeah. One <laughs> of the um, interesting things how God always gets the last laugh is. <laughs> This Herod builds this port, and of course, in um, we all know the story about how the wise men came to Herod and told the wise men that, oh, you know, where is this boy born, born king of the Jews? Well, Herod was paranoid, and our guide called him called them the wise, uh, the unwise men, because they told a paranoid king there was a new king. Right. But, so of course, <laughs> Herod goes and has the innocent slaughtered, and we all know the story. Joseph takes Jesus to Egypt, and then on the way back avoids the area because he's heard about the, the ruler was a very bad ruler at the time. Right. Avoids it. Well, it's from Caesarea that God um, sends out the gospel, you know, the ships that would leave there. So God got the last laugh because okay. it was that Herod created that God used to spread the gospel of the man that Herod tried to kill when he was a baby. Right. Yeah, real neat irony there. Uh-huh. Well, how, listen, how much of this ancient harbor is left there today? Is it just ruins or what? There, yeah, none of it. It was destroyed in an earthquake. Okay. So you couldn't actually see the crates. It just looked like a normal Mediterranean coastline. Right. You see the ruins of the... Of the, of the city, but right. not the harbor. Okay. So before I forget, Kirk... We should give a shout out to Daniel Pop. He's one of our listeners from Australia. Hi, Daniel. <laughs> who was on the uh, trip? Okay. So it was kind of fun because it was the first day, and we were kind of meeting people. And basically, he was the first person I introduced myself to. And he said, "Oh, Keith Kendricks. Oh, Evidence for Faith. I listened to that show. Really? Yeah. <laughs> wow. It was great. Yeah. That was it. Was it was neat. And he he said he loved the Tim McGrew." Uh, episode. So that was the first Tim McGrew interview because obviously we had Tim McGrew on while we were gone. Right. So that was kind of fun. So hello, Daniel. That's neat. We've got fans down in Australia. Yep. Add another country to the list. (laughs) 
So, Kirk, we went to another place we went to is Tel Megiddo. Uh, and that was really fascinating. A Tel means basically a city that's been built upon a city that's been built upon a city. And it creates the ruins create a hill. Right. Because each each uh, generation or each attempt to build the city is on top of the ruins. They just kind of flatten everything down and start building over again. Right. So this is a place that archaeologists love to dig and go through the layers and see what's there. Right, like the city of Troy in uh, Asia Minor. That has like seven or eight different levels in it. That's right, that's right. So this is the same kind of thing, and they've dug down, and one of the things that they found is the a four-chambered city gate that in Megiddo, it also matches two other cities. It's an identical architecture, and this goes to prove the biblical verse that says that Solomon built the gates of these three towns. He built up these three towns. Right. And um, so, again, this is proof because remember the critics believe that David wasn't a real person, Solomon wasn't a real person, that Israel was essentially non-existent in those days, and that the Israelites created this history for them while they were captives in Babylon, and they kind of elaborated all the stories in the Bible to give themselves an identity so that they could survive being in captivity. Right. Well, all this archaeological evidence has come to light showing that, that no, these really were real people. All of the stories in the Bible really are true. Right. And, and they had, they were big they were a large nation. They had the money and power to do things like build um, these cities. So another thing that's there is a there's a tunnel that was cut through bedrock to bring mu- uh, water from the spring into the city. Mm-hmm. And again, this is the kind of effort that would require a lot of resources. So we know that Israel was a major player at that time. So it's not just a mythical story. How do they dig a tunnel like that without modern equipment? Do you know? Well, it was the beginning of the Iron Age. So, you know, they had iron and they used chisels and axes and... and Just pounded away at it, huh? Yep. You got lots of manpower. So, they took advantage of it. (laughs) Megiddo might be familiar to some uh, of the listeners as the place of Armageddon. We looked out over the field of Armageddon with the... uh, where the... In Revelation, you know, God's armies will meet the armies of the world. And and coincidentally, interestingly, there is an Israeli air base there. Right, yeah, right in the middle of the valley. Right in the middle of the valley. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Just one of those funny things. um, Then we went and saw Nazareth, the area of Nazareth. We drove around. We got to see Cana. Okay. You know, we we read about the wedding at Cana and Jesus turning water into wine. Yeah, I was going to say, did you attend any weddings there? (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting because, just to give you an idea, Jesus is growing up in a little town called Nazareth, and that town is so small that the historian Josephus never even mentions it when he's describing this region, even though he lists other cities in the area. And there's a church there called the Church of the Annunciation, that has walls around it, and our guide told us that the original city of Nazareth would have fit within the walls of the church. Huh. That's how small it was. Wow. So Mary and Joseph were really, when they were running away from, I believe it was Antiochus, 
who had slaughtered a bunch of Jews, they really found the armpit of the world, the, the just a, a real you know, backwoods uh, hick town. Exactly, a wide spot in the road. Right. So then, when you we read the story about Jesus going to Cana for a wedding, guess what? That's a big city. Really? Cana, Cana compared to Nazareth, they, they figure Cana had about a 10,000 population at that time. So although it wasn't really a big city, um, comparatively, this would have been like going to the big city. Right, sure. And I thought one of the interesting things that confirms that the authors of the New Testament really knew the culture and really were eyewitnesses was this interesting thing about the fact that the scripture says that the that the wedding took place on the third day of the week. Uh-huh. Well, it turns out that people at that time thought that that was the best day to have a wedding. And where they get that from is from chapter uh, Genesis chapter 1, where the days of creation are described and on the third day, it's described when God says, uh, and it was good, he says it for this day, he happens to say it twice. So that so it was believed that that day was the best day to get married on. Huh. Okay. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. And yet, so the, the authors were careful to write that it was on the third day, but they didn't bother to explain why they mentioned that it was on the third day. Right. But that's when they usually had weddings back then. Exactly right. Cool. <laughs> That's one of, another one of those little, uh, uh, what did uh, Professor McGrew call them, the uh, interesting coincidences in yeah, the Bible? It, yes, exactly right. Yeah. It also explains why, uh, what was the guy's name? Nathaniel? Was it Nathaniel who scoffed at uh, that Jesus was from Nazareth? You know, he says, can anything good ever come out of Nazareth? Right. Because he knew that Nazareth was this... <laughs> no-name town and, you know, that, you know, sixth-grade education, and he was scoffing that this great <laughs> prophet could come from Nazareth because he knew what Nazareth w was like. Right. And, that, why else would you say that? Can anything good come out, from, you know, out of Nazareth unless you knew what Nazareth was actually, was actually like? Yeah. It was a hick town. <laughs> exactly. If you were yeah. from there, you were, you know, you were a hillbilly or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Not that they had hillbillies back then, but you know what I mean. Well, the equivalent. Right. <laughs> Kirk, one of the neat things about the trip was that Dr. Craig gave a couple of lectures in the evenings. So we got to hear from his wisdom, and, and it was really, really good. I'll bet. I made a few notes, and I don't want to you know, repeat all of the stuff that he taught us about, but at least for apologetics and, you know, evidences for Christianity that we like to focus on on our show, Dr. Craig pointed out, you know, that all of this visiting these ruins and stuff really points out the fact that Christianity is a historical religion. It's not a religion that's made up of myths and, you know, just so stories. Right. Long begone, once upon a time type of stories. These are real events about real people that happen in time and space. In and real places that we can still visit today. That's right. And we can examine them and we can see, are they reliable? Right. You know, is it true? Can we really put our trust in what we're told? Right. He mentioned one of the things that was interesting that he mentioned is about when Herod the Great, and, and you know, we got to hear the whole history of Herod and how he became great and all the many things that he did and also a little bit about how and why he just fell off the deep end and went crazy so that by the end of his 
life, he was really a brutally murder, murderous uh, psychopath. <laughs> and the biblical story talks about the wise men telling him that, you know, there was this, they had seen the star and that they believed that there was a new king. And so what does Herod do? He orders that all the kids in Bethlehem be slaughtered. I think right. he said uh, below the age of two. Right. Well, critics have gone about it a couple different ways. One is they've said that, well, this, you know, can't be true. Nobody, nobody would have done such a brutal thing. And it turns out that historically, no, he was a really brutal man. Uh, you know, in fact, he was so brutal that he realized that when he died, that no one would mourn his death. So he rounded up 700 of the region's most popular leaders and elite people and held them in prison while he was on his deathbed and gave the order that when he died, all 700 of them were to be slaughtered so that there would be great mourning in the land on the day he died. Oh, my gosh. That's the kind of psychopath he was. They didn't do it. Yeah. yeah for, fortunately, they didn't carry out that order. Oh, they so didn't. Okay. <laughs> he was the, the type of man. And then the other thing that critics have said, and I think some of the atheists that we've debated on this show have argued that, well, if there had really been a slaughter of, of this type, then it would have made it into the history books. Well, turns out that Bethlehem also at that time was a very, very small city. And so right. it's estimated that the the maximum number of, and I've seen estimates as low as six children that they really? estimate, but but the maximum number that, that that likely there was that were there would be, that were killed would have been about 20 children. Wow. So it's actually nothing that would have made it into the history books, and yet it is exactly in agreement with the type of person that we know we now know Herod the Great to be. Right. And, of course, they didn't have the Internet or anything back then to pass the word around either. That's true. That's true. Yeah, right. Who News didn't travel fast in those days. Yeah, that's right. So, um, well, I don't want to get you off your itinerary here, but I have to ask you one question. Did you visit uh, the Garden Tomb? Yes, yes. We, we did. Okay, how was that? Uh, well, it was neat. It was. It's a great example of a tomb with a a rolling stone. It's exactly the kind of tomb that Jesus would have been buried in, with no moss on it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not. Yeah, the the a pigeon. <laughs> Okay. No, no moss, yeah. Right. So, yeah, that's that's why they use rolling stones, in fact, because rolling stones <laughs> gather, gather no moss. moss yes. right. But what's neat about the garden tomb, it's not so much that, because it's, it's really actually not believed that that was the tomb that Jesus was buried in. Yeah, there's actually two of them, isn't there? That, that's right. Correct. Yeah, exactly I'm not totally right. sure which one is the right one, but it's probably one or the other. Well, they're pretty sure that it is at the... Church of the Sepulchre. Okay, so right. That yeah, the, that one is the correct one. Just now, the fact that they built the church over that site probably argues heavily for it. Well, yeah. In fact, it's very interesting how that happened. After Constantine made Christianity the official religion, his mother began. You know, she had basically all the money in the world, and she traveled around trying to find some of the Christian sites and some of the places that the Bible talked about. She looked for Mount Sinai and things like that. And right. she got to Jerusalem. She asked about where 
was Jesus buried? And Nancy, you've got your notes. Why don't you, you can probably give a better explanation. Of, what, what time period are we talking about when she did this? So this, this is the 300s. So this so, is only like a couple hundred years after the events. Yeah, that's right. Yes, in one in one thirty two, Hadrian, um, he they were tired of the they were tired of the um, Israelites, Jews, whatever, revolting. So Hadrian um, built a temple to Aphrodite over a spot where uh, where he believed Jesus's tomb was because people believed that that's where he was buried because they were worshiping there. Right. There was a that's where they were worshiping. So he built this temple to Aphrodite. Okay. So when Helena, the Constantine's mother, came, she inquired and found where this this temple was. So she had the temple torn down to you know commemorate the site, and then the um, Crusaders built a, a church there later. Right over the site of the tomb. Right. So and and when they dug down, there was a there was a tomb there. Okay. So it's not like this was just a spot. Um, there really was a tomb there. So as far back as, and, and there's a continuous, continuous evidence that Christians believe that this was where Jesus was buried. Right. I, I wouldn't so, think that that would be something the, uh, the early Christians would not remember and uh, kind of pass on. You yeah, know, exactly. At least by word of mouth, if no that other they way. they would remember, yeah. Right. So, so and, and in fact, they did. One of the issues then is, okay, if that's where he was buried and not the garden tomb, where did he die? And so at the garden tomb, there's a, a part of the hillside. It's an it's a unused quarry. Right. They used to have stonings there. And it does look like the face of a skull right there. It's very obvious. How and far away that's from, what, the, from the other site is it? Um, it's, it's not very far. It's um, maybe a tenth of a mile. Okay. So it'd be a bit of a walk. I mean, they, you know, they would have had to take his body down and actually carry it somewhere. Right. But um, so it's not too far that it can't be, they can't be related. Let's right. put it that way. Okay. It's, all, it's also the, um, where the, we'll call it the garden tomb just because that's the name of the place. Right. It's also at a um, major crossroads uh, where the road goes to um, Bethlehem and... Um, into one of the uh, gates of the city. In one of the gates of the city goes to Bethlehem. Uh, the guys on the road to wherever that was, where Paul was, into the D. I can't think of the name of it right now. But anyway, it was a, it's a major crossroads. So the Romans like to make deterrence. When they crucified people, they wanted people to see it as a determined not to rebel. Right. It wouldn't have been up on the hill like we have in our picture books. It would have been down at the bottom of the hill where people could see it. And Which, that fits all the criteria. The crossroads, right. it, the place does look like a skull. So it is believed that Jesus was crucified there and buried over where the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is now. Okay. And, and Golgotha means place of the skull. Right. So, so there's a connection there that seems to be that's likely where he was crucified. So you were inside this Church of the Sepulchre? Yes. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah, we what? waited in line. I think it was about an hour wait to it get to see. It was that long, but it was um, a long time. It was a long time. It's of course it's been made a shrine, right? You know, was, uh, but it was something we had to do. You know, you have to go sta- stand in there. So if it was indeed where Jesus was buried, we were standing on top of it. Wow, that must have felt really neat. Yeah, it, I would it have was. goosebumps. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, it does. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So I have some notes about the. Nancy talked about how Caesarea became the place from which Christianity spread, and Herod the Great provided that. This was something that our guide, or I guess this was from Dr. Craig's notes. 
But anyways, he said that Origen, who lived in 185 to 254, he was a Christian philosopher. It's where he lived and taught and wrote. And also Eusebius, probably many people have heard of the Christian early father Eusebius. And he, he was bishop of Caesarea. And a, a lot of Christians came there to study because uh, they had a library of 30,000 manuscripts. So it was, it was a, um, a massive city and a great port right there. And, you know, Jerusalem had been destroyed in 70 AD. So it was the next logical place for all the Christians to go. Mm-hmm. So it was very interesting. So let's see. The next thing we saw was we went when we were in the area around Nazareth and Capernaum is we got to, we went to this museum where they have a first century fishing boat. And that was really cool. So it would have been a boat very much like what Peter would have used to catch fish. And it survived all this time and they were able to excavate it not long ago and put it in a museum. Yes. I think I remember when they found that, that was only like a few years ago, wasn't it? Yeah, it wasn't that long ago. Yeah, it was in the newspapers at the time. That's right. And really fascinating. They and they found a lot of, you know, things with it, nails and pottery and coins and things like that. So those were all on display. Right. And uh, really fascinating. The other thing is, you know, Galilee is I guess by lake standards it's not all that big of a lake, but somebody asked our guides about the you know, storms. Could there be really be a storm so bad that it, you would feel like your life was threatened uh-huh. on that lake? And it was very interesting. Our guide had asked the same question to some of the boaters there because, you know, they take tourists out all the time right? out on the Sea of Galilee. And one of the captains of the boat said that some years back he had been caught in a, in a really bad storm there. It took them four hours to get back and they really, really thought they were going to be dead. Um, So storms do sweep through there occasionally and produce very high waves that could easily swamp some of these boats. Right. So that was a neat, I thought, confirmation uh, of the scripture's story. Right. There was another interesting thing that they mentioned out that historical too, and that is in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, there's a prophecy about a great light that would come to Naphtali and Zebulun. And it talks about the way of the sea, by the way of the sea. Mm -hmm. Well, this way of the sea is, it's the Via Mares. And it was an actual caravan route that came from Egypt and went off into the Middle East. And it actually went through right by the Sea of Galilee, right there where Jesus taught. So all that area that Naphtali and Zebulun is now, or it was then called uh, Nazareth and Capernaum. Uh-huh. So terrific prophet, fulfillment of prophecy. Right. Nancy, you have anything else? Uh, when, you, when you're on the Sea of Galilee, you can look um, coming from Tiberias, which we were doing. So you're going to the other side. On your right is the Decapolis, which is mentioned in the Bible. And on your left is Mount Arbel, which is a fascinating story about Herod, which I'm not going to look it up. It's a great story about Herod. It gives you an appreciation for the kind of uh, man, you know, he was nutso, but he was actually very brilliant. Anyway, military genius. Military yeah. genius and building genius. Anyway, between those two points, 75% of all the events in the Gospels happened. Wow. Caught 
they call it a gospel tri tri uh, triangle from, uh, you know, uh, Jesus, um, I don't want to say curses, rebukes. We'll say rebukes, three cities, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. Right. Those make a triangle, and that's where 75% of all the, go of the gospel action takes place in this very small area right by the Sea of Galilee. Wow. Well, it kind of makes sense since Jesus hung around fishermen. All most of his disciples were fishermen. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. And Peter and Peter yeah. was from Capernaum. Right. They a lot of them probably came from that area. Yeah. One of the things we got to see was what they believe is Peter's house. And uh, oh, again, yeah. it's it's one of these things where you know there was an an ancient church there. They dug down underneath this ancient church and found Christian graffiti on the walls from the time. And so they're, they're really, it's very highly probable that that was Peter's house. Wow. Uh, another thing that's neat is, you know, the story about how Jesus threw the thousand demons into the herd of pigs. Right. Well, there's only, and then the herd of pigs rush down and, and kind of, it, it, it sounds like they fall into the, to the sea of Galilee. They ran off a cliff. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, well, there's only one place where there is such a cliff, and it's right there where the Bible says that's where Jesus was at the time. Wow. So there's a, there, right above the cliff, there's a, a pasture land where the herd would have been grazing. Right. And that's the only cliff at all that goes down into the Sea of Galilee. So, so it's obviously right there. I mean, you know, you see it and you can see exactly what, what the scripture was talking about. Wow, yeah. Now, is Peter's house open to the public or what? It's just, well, it's just ruins. It's just the the rock outline. You can see, oh. you know, they, they made the walls out of rock, and they lived in these cities that were, you know, very close. Obviously, the rooms were all small. There were roadways that would go between, but, but basically it's like looking at a labyrinth, at, at a maze, and... So, so you see these, you know, maybe one to two foot high walls, and you have to just kind of build the rest of the building in right. your mind. Right. But a couple of neat things about it is that they, they have the synagogue, the Capernaum synagogue has been uncovered, and they've been able to restore quite a bit of it. So you see the pillars and columns, and you see where the people sat. So this would have been where Jesus would have attended and been and taught at this uh, synagogue. And right there, you look out from the synagogue, you can see the other part of the city. And one of our guides mentioned how when Jesus was talking about praying in the open at the synagogue, the synagogue leaders would pray in the open there. Because if you prayed at the synagogue, everybody could see you. But right across the street from you were these buildings with all these inner rooms, like this labyrinth that I'm describing of walls. Mm -hmm. So, And that's where the rest of the people lived. So somebody could be in there in their own inner room, and you would not know that they were there. So that's what Jesus was talking about, praying in your inner room. Right. So just fascinating. Well, I just hope they haven't uh, commercialized the site of Peter's house. They weren't selling Peter bobbleheads or anything like that there, <laughs> were they? Actually, there's a very ugly church structure over it at the moment. Really? Yeah, they, it's supposed like, to look like a ship, but I didn't quite see it. It must be some kind of a Frank Lloyd Wright ship, because I, I just wasn't seeing it. Right. So, yeah, it looks like, a, I thought it looked like a flying saucer. Yeah, maybe a catamaran if you have a great imagination. But. Right. It was okay. not, not a ship by any stretch of the imagination. Right. Well, we have about 
three minutes left. What can you tell us in that time? Well, I guess maybe we can talk about, um, well, there was this, the interesting fact about how when Jesus came into on his triumphal entry, right. uh, our guide uh, told us about the significance of the palm branches. And I hadn't heard this, or at least if I'd heard it, I didn't remember it. The palm branches represents Jewish independence. And all throughout their history, they've had palm branches on their coins. And to, th- to this day, there are palm branches on the coins because it's strongly associated with Jewish independence. Wow. So, so when Jesus was arriving into Jerusalem and they were saying, Hosanna, save us, what they were saying was, kick the Romans out. Right. Save us from the Romans. Restore to us our independence. Right. So Which is what even the, even the disciples kept asking him that. When are you going to restore Israel? When are you going to restore Israel? That's right. Yeah. That's right. So it really gives you an idea because it seems confusing in the text as to how could this crowd that had welcomed Jesus so much, one week later, they're ready to have him crucified. And you can see why this would be the case, because now he's standing before them all beaten and battered, whipped and bleeding, and they're not, he's not the man that they thought would free them from Rome. Right. In reality, he came to free them from a much greater slavery, right. slavery to sin. Right. They lost faith in him as the guy who was going to rescue Israel from the Romans at that point. Right. And in reality, they needed to put their faith in him so that they could be rescued and saved from the true slavery of the heart, the slavery of sin. Right. So, well, um, that's so a good he note. did redeem them, just not in the way they expected. Right. And, and they were expecting a Messiah. You know, we've done that show on the Daniel 9 prophecy. And it, they were expecting a Messiah at that time because the, time, the timing works out from Daniel 9 and the edict to rebuild the temple. So it worked out perfectly, and, and they were expecting the Messiah to come. He just wasn't what they expected when he got there. Exactly. He wasn't the, the type of Messiah that right. they expected. Well, I think that's just about all the time we've got. So, all right. uh, well, it was, it's been great. Very interesting. And uh, maybe we'll hear a little more uh, detail about it in future shows. Yeah, I think so. We might be able to squeak in a few little stories about our trip. Right. Okay. So, so thank you, Kirk, very much. Thanks. Yes. Thank you for uh, your information. And to our listeners, join us again next week. And always remember the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true.